I Will Trust Brexit Focus with Paul Goslin and Jared Dean. Welcome everybody to the Hollywell Brexit Focus podcast. My name's Jared Dean and as always I'm joined by Paul Gosling. Good day. This is the sixth episode in our series that looks at Brexit and the impact that it might have on the Northwest. First of all, before we go any further or talk to anybody or hear from anybody, we have to thank our funders, the Community Foundation for Northern Ireland, who took the decision to have a Brexit Dialogue Fund and we have benefited from that and we're eternally grateful. This month we're going to have our usual Brexit Watch feature and then some interviews. We've got London Dairy Chamber of Commerce, President Jennifer McKeever, Brent Dotty from the Dotty Group and David McMullen from County Armagh Community Development Group as well as Dara MacDonald who'll be on talking about his new book. But Paul, first of all, we'll get torn on the what's been happening. 28th of June, we have a, a deadline looming and Irish border question may need to be answered by then. What do you think is going to happen? Difficult to tell, Gerard. Phase one was achieved last year really with a bit of a fudge about what would happen to the border. And mm-hmm. now we're at phase two. The Irish government and French government in particular have said, as has the European Commission, there's no more fudging. We have to have an outcome. We have to have a decision by the 28th of June, which is the next summit of leaders of European Union member states. Mm-hmm. However, we're not actually at a position where we can be confident that there is a possible deal around. What we do know is that the cabinet has agreed a position Not all the cabinet ministers are happy with that. Some Mm. feel that they've been pushed into something they didn't really want to be pushed into. But the UK government position now is that they want to continue a form of customs union membership after leaving the European Union. That the objective is to achieve a technological solution which will enable trade to continue without there being any border security or infrastructure. But that recognising that that technology isn't available at the moment that it will continue to be a member, in effect, of the customs union until the technology becomes available. There's several problems with that. The first problem problem is that the Brexiteers are sceptical and fear that this may simply be a way of keeping the United Kingdom in the customs union without actually there being a technological solution available. So that's the second problem as well, which is we don't know whether a technological solution will ever become available. Hmm. Then we have the fact that the European Commission has said that is not an outcome that is acceptable. For many people that want to remain within the European Union, that is actually quite an attractive option, though it doesn't actually fully deal with the issue of the border, because the issue of the border isn't just about customs, it's also about regulations. Mm. So you have to have regulatory alignment with the European Union, as well as having agreement on customs. It means that the UK cannot effectively negotiate new trade agreements until the technology becomes available to achieve this. But then you have another problem, which yeah. is that as far as the European Commission is concerned, the United Kingdom is leaving the European Union. It will no longer be paying into the European Union, but it will be taking all the benefits while not accepting one of the key conditions of the single market, which is open access for people to move around, freedom of movement to people. Yeah. So effectively, the UK's position is that it wants to cherry pick everything that's good about the European Union and taking nothing that it doesn't like. So is the European Commission really going to accept that? We'll find out, perhaps, by the 28th of June. Okay, several problems there. Um, 
it's nearly hilarious the fact that they're still proposing something that was rejected a while ago. But well, that's anyway. one element of it. The yeah. other element is that we've now almost got a position where Leave campaigners know what they want two years after they got the vote that they wanted. Aye, well, there we are. Okay, so the Scottish government also decided over the last couple of weeks not to give its consent for Brexit as well. That's right. Under the evolution agreement, a uh, constitutional settlement goes to the devolved parliaments. In Northern Ireland's case, of course, we don't have a functioning devolved parliament. Yeah. But theoretically, it goes to the Scottish and Welsh and Northern Ireland assemblies and parliaments to ask them to ratify it. And mm. the Scottish parliament has said, no, we're not going to ratify it. The best legal advice is, ultimately, it doesn't matter. But it might end up in the courts. And Scotland is making it absolutely clear that it doesn't want to leave the European Union. Well, I think if it went to the Northern Ireland Assembly, That's you wouldn't matter. have a clear outcome because yeah. the Unionist parties, in particular the DUP, is still committed to Brexit yeah. and the Nationalist parties are clearly opposed and the Alliance Party is opposed. So I don't know what would happen yeah. if we did have a devolved okay. functioning government. Fair enough, fair enough. There's been a bit of chat about, or between the Brexiteers, if you like, and the Irish government about Ireland's inflexibility towards border infrastructure and things like that? Yes, the the view of Brexiteers, or at least some of them, is that the reason things are not going well is because the people who lost the vote, the remaining side, have not recognised the defeat and have not got on board with making it work. And they feel that the, the, the Remain campaigners, plus the European Commission and the Irish government, are not playing ball and they're not trying to make things work. Uh, from their point of view, they're saying, well, actually, we don't think it can work. So mm. we, And also, what the Irish government and the European Commission has said is, well, it's not the outcome we wanted, it's the outcome you wanted, therefore the onus is on you to find the solution, and you haven't done so. Okay. So there's a certain uh, lockstep there, really, where we don't know how that's going to be resolved. Okay, but we've got Simon Coveney came out and reaffirmed the Irish government's position. Absolutely. The Irish government is absolutely clear. A hard border is not acceptable. The phase one agreement specified there would be no hard border and therefore we will keep you to that. You will not move out of that position. So what it would seem is we will either have a soft border, the understanding of the European Commission and the Irish government as to what the phase one settlement meant, we either have that or we actually crash out of the European Union without any deal. There's particular efforts being made in the Republic of Ireland as well to attract new business result of Brexit. That's right. We've had uh, one of the big financial services exchanges that have already announced that they're going to move from London to Dublin. Mm. And the IDA, the Industrial Development Agency of Ireland, which is a very successful organisation to attract inward investment, uh, is redoubling its efforts to attract businesses that are currently located within the United Kingdom, broadly within Great Britain, to relocate over to Ireland. That's a bit of a challenge for Ireland because Dublin in particular is overheating. Mm. The housing market's... uh, overheated in particular Uh, so they might have a bit of a struggle but they are certainly keen to attract more investment in particular also over to the west coast Uh, you know they've had problems with Athlone with uh, uh, Apple withdrawing from their agreement to to locate facilities there so they might have spare capacity over the west coast but the IDA is very keen that as a result of Brexit there will be more businesses moved from Britain into the south of Ireland. More local story we've had Paddy Nixon from McGee coming out talking about the impact of Brexit on McGee, on the university. That's right. Uh, I've interviewed Paddy myself, and uh, this is not a surprise. He was interviewed in the Irish uh, Times by uh, Freya McClements, well-known local journalist, and he was saying to Freya that uh, the McGee is already 
dealing with the challenge of Brexit. Mm. It's got quite a lot of staff members that are saying they don't know whether they will continue to work at McGee because they don't want to have to cross the border if there is a difficult border in the future. But specifically, they're already losing students. They're reducing the number of student applications going there because one of the attractions of McGee was that it, you know Derry is a border city. It gives you the best of both worlds. Mm. And that attraction is being lost. And that's the last thing that we can afford as they lose student numbers as well. Well, especially as we also know separately that there are difficulties about getting the medical school over the line at McGee. Okay, well, we'll keep an eye on that one. And we had a famous visitor to the city in the last couple of weeks. We had Michelle Barnier was here. Paul, I think we're going to have a, a short piece from the press conference with Monsieur. Uh, I'm delighted also to meet today with uh, businesses from all uh, part of the Northern Ireland and uh, to listen and to understand uh, their opinions and also to explain how the EU uh, proposed a solution, a tax stop to avoid our border between Ireland and Northern Ireland. So I'm, I'm ready to listen to everybody and uh, to understand, to explain also the EU position. Okay, we've just heard from Michel Barnier there, and one of the people that met Michel uh, during his recent visit was Jennifer McKeever from Londonderry Chamber of Commerce, the President and also Chief Executive of Airporter, and you had a chat with Jennifer recently. Yeah, Jennifer was first of all able to tell me about what uh, she learned from the meeting with Michel Barnier, but went on to talk at some length about uh, the challenges being faced by local businesses, and also a bit about the recruitment difficulties they're facing. And what takeout did you get from the Michel Barnier talks? Certainly that Europe understands Northern Ireland deeply, intrinsically, forensically. I would argue the Europeans understand our framework in Northern Ireland better than we do in Northern Ireland. So they're very sympathetic, but they don't represent us. We sit with the UK and he was very clear, I hear your concerns, but I, we have no interest in getting involved in, in an internal political discussion either in the UK or in Northern Ireland. You find your voice and you go to your political representatives. Sadly and one of, the things, one of the things that seems peculiar is that there's a frustration amongst quite a lot of UK politicians that the European Union isn't providing solutions for Brexit. I don't but think equally, it's really their job to exactly, find. Exactly. That's yeah. what I think European Commission leaders yeah. and EU political leaders are saying, well, we're, we're not the ones who've we're taken that decision, ones, yeah. so why should we come and up with solutions to your exactly problem? you understood exactly what the rules were to this club. You've understood exactly what they have been for the last 40 years. Why on earth would you think that we would have changed them for you? He was also very, very, very clear, crystal clear, um, that the UK could not cherry-pick the single market. Um, he recognised that we have exceptional, unique circumstances here in Northern Ireland. He was very sympathetic to that. But he was also very clear that he was there to represent the views of heads of state of 27 countries, not of ours. We've now had a long period of waiting for the Brexit negotiations to conclude. Uh, to what extent is the Brexit uncertainty impacting on chamber members? Primarily, it is that continued sense of uncertainty, that real discernible disquiet that is seeping into business and that has an unfortunate consequence which is really a loss of confidence I suppose or maybe not a loss but a wobble on confidence so um, I think at this stage lots of us have heard uh, of big projects that have been paused only paused at this stage but but nobody wants to hear that projects have been paused I think on a day-to-day basis for a lot of our members, because a lot of our members are SMEs, I think where people are starting to see the pinch is with their own staff. 
I haven't seen solid figures that indicate what the percentage of loss of staff is, but I do now start to speak to people who say their staff are really weighing up the costs of, of coming over the border every day to go to their jobs. So these are valuable, skilled staff. Obviously, with the drop of sterling, what they're taking home isn't worth the same as what it was um, a couple of years ago. And they're starting to think, gosh, is this the job that I want to be in five years' time if, they're, if it's going to take me long? to get to work if my wages are going to be less worth less whenever I take them home they're also hesitating so while I don't think there's any solid figures yet here in the business community that there are large scale statistics that indicate loss of staff or loss of investments there is definitely a sense of pause of hesitation and I think that that pause hasn't yet been seen because pause means that investments that should have come to fruition in 2019 aren't going to come to fruition in 2019. They'll be pushed back and maybe pushed back indefinitely. So that causes great concern. We have enough challenges here in the Northwest with staff and with investment and with, um, with, with keeping our wages competitive. So um, that, that causes great concern. That's a very interesting point about people being willing to travel over to Northern Ireland from the Republic because we do have a labour market, a labour pool that is cross-border. The travel-to-work area covers Letterkenny as well as Derry and going mm-hmm. up towards Coleraine. So it's a very interesting mm-hmm. point that people have suffered quite significant real-term mm-hmm. wage losses as mm-hmm. a result of the depreciation of sterling following the Brexit vote. Uh, so you can certainly understand that there will be a lot of people that perhaps will be thinking, well, perhaps I could get a job in Letterkenny rather mm-hmm. than Derry, and you know, I'll have greater certainty about mm-hmm. my income stream mm-hmm. if I'm paying a mortgage in euros. But also we're hearing you know, from people who've perhaps uh, come over here from Poland uh, and other places within the European Union mm-hmm. uh, beyond Ireland that, you know, is this a place that welcomes them? Is this a place where they can settle down over the longer term? Is that something that members are referring to you about? Not me and my own business, certainly. But yeah, I, I know that there's a, a large agricultural firm, um, agri-food firm, not too far from here. And they have um, provided figures that have indicated that their EU nationals, or I beg your pardon, their, their workforce as a whole was, a, was previously a, a staff turnover of about 1%. Now they have a monthly staff turnover of about 3 or 4%. And those are EU nationals. I would find it very hard to think that EU nationals have managed to ignore the the politicking um, that has gone along with the Brexit debates over the past couple of years, and I don't think I, I, I don't think that it's necessarily the attractive place that it, that it was two or three or five years ago. Um, so I know that certainly that agri-food culture uh, company reports that those EU nationals are simply saying, look. I can get a job in Germany. Again, I have that guarantee of what my wages are because, again, you know, with the drop in sterling, their wages are not worth as much whenever they send them back home again. And that will affect certain industries like hospitality and like agri-foods, which for Northern Ireland represents such a big part of our workforce. And that's very concerning. Because that is a very important point that we should perhaps stress that actually the sectors that are most affected by this are agri-foods, which is the biggest sector yeah. in Northern Ireland, yeah. and hospitality, which is actually the growth sector for, for dairy and, and area. So actually our economy will be disproportionately affected, not just because we are close to the border, mm-hmm. but because we are dependent on those sectors Yeah, that's right. So, and again, I haven't seen solid data, but I'm sure that it can't be too far away because, uh, you know, at a certain point, employers will simply 
not be as productive. These are valuable members of staff that they have invested in, that they have trained, and to start to lose those in any serious numbers will, will at a certain point, that will affect productivity. And perhaps already is, because we're seeing Mm -hmm. the UK figures that while employment figures are still high, Mm -hmm. we're still growing employment numbers, the productivity across the UK is declining. Mm -hmm. And there are suggestions that that's Mm -hmm. because perhaps investment has fallen because Mm -hmm. of uncertainty around investment. And if we've got lower investment, then we've got lower productivity, which means over-dependence on workers rather than the technology to deliver. Mm, And we're very poor. You know, our productivity rate in the UK as a whole is very poor to begin with. So again... And much poorer in Northern Ireland than the rest of the UK. Absolutely. So again, that indicates that we will be even more disproportionately disadvantaged with with the effects of Brexit here on the border areas. And what are your members telling you about what they want now from politicians? Leadership, front and centre. In the backdrop of this complicated geopolitical economic debate, which changes day and daily, week and weekly, we have no political leadership in Northern Ireland. I mean, it, it's tragic. It, it's nearly comedy if it wasn't so tragic. Um, and no, no immediate pros- prospect that that's going to change. So I, one of the things that I think has been the saddest, the cruelest of the last couple of years is to see how the two big parties in Northern Ireland have just disappeared into the trenches and they've taken their communities with them and they've taken their rhetoric with them. I think that's so sad and so dangerous. Where, you know, three or four or five years ago, certainly 20 years ago with the Good Friday Agreement, there was a sense that, yes, we had our challenges, yes, we had a very high portion of of social deprivation, economically inactive, but we were all working for the same goal, which was that all all of our communities would do better. That shared vision has been lost over the past two years, or certainly has been silenced. I find that really, really sad. And it's very hard then whenever you go looking for political leadership to articulate these really complicated, complicated uh, possibilities that in actual fact our political parties seem to want to do completely different things. The Highwell Podcast breaks at focus. Funded by the Community Foundation of Northern Ireland's Brexit Dialogue Fund. Download this programme and stream it for free on SoundCloud.com, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher.com. Subscribe, listen, share and enjoy. Okay, Jennifer McKeever there. Thank you very much, Jennifer, for your time uh, for the interview. Jennifer talked about recruitment challenges there, referenced it um, during your interview. That was something that was followed up by Brenton Doddy from the Doddy Group as well. That's right. We know that the recruitment issues are particularly difficult for the hospitality sector. Brendan's uh, a director of a hotel group, and they that sector is really struggling with recruitment anyway. That's mm-hmm. why they have become so dependent on European Union workers, in particular, as Brendan goes on to say, uh, for chefs, it's very difficult to recruit chefs, and that is a real challenge. So Brenda talks a bit more about that now. Like everybody, most of it's conversation so far. However, we do have an impact on staff. We do have a situation where there are certain jobs that in the last 10 years have traditionally been taken up by, um, I suppose, generally people from from Europe, and those are are jobs that local people don't seem to have a great deal of interest in. Room cleaning and the, you know, the, the very more labour intensive type jobs. We have 
currently got quite a few Europeans working here, but there are certainly talk, you know, that they don't know what's going to happen. Are they better going home now and getting a job? Um, are we going to keep be able to get people coming here? And generally, the feeling is that we won't. There already are massive shortfalls and shortages and, and skilled workers and, and for chefs, for example, which we, you know, possibly were available in the last number of years, but again, they've dried up even as it is. So we have, we have an issue going forward in the tourist industry. How are we going to give people what they want at the price they want to give it when we already can't get staff and I have no idea how we're going to cope with this going forward in the future. It's going to be very difficult and you know we can say we're going to train and we're going to do this but if people don't want to do certain jobs what are we going to do? The training so far in the, in the chef end of the business is atrocious. There is no supply whatsoever. You have businesses that can't operate because they can't get the skills. That's, this is going to be a problem going forward in, in our industry and our industry creates jobs and business for other industries and you know we want people to come here we say how nice dairy is looking we do have to figure out what we're going to do about this and that's a very interesting point in particular about chefs because the shortage of skilled chefs has driven up the uh, charges on the, 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 the payment that has to be made to chefs and that is pushing uh, the profitability of some businesses. I mean, uh, to what extent can hospitality businesses more generally cope with you know, the, the demands for high wages by people with uh, skills that are in high demand? Well, I can't. We can't in this economy. We're in, we're in a low-wage economy. It's certainly a lot of the year, 70 or 90% of your customers are local. The, the skill shortage means that, the, which is good if you're a chef, that you're going to get paid more money in, in, in dairy than you'll get in Padstow or parts of England. You'll get more money here than you'll get in places with a much higher cost of living. Um, therefore, the logic in that is that one or two things happen. The prices go up. Prices can't go up because the economy here can't afford it or places will close down. And those are the two things that are going to happen. Following from that, you've then got a, a driving down a, a standards because there's, there's there's not the high level of skills coming here um, because places like Belfast, where there is a higher disposable income, can allow chefs that that are available and at this point in time coming from other parts of the world will go to Belfast and Dublin before they'll come to the area because of our economy being the, the low wage economy and everything that comes from that. So we can certainly see the impact at the, the high skill end of the, the trade, but there's also an impact at the lower skill end of the trade where there isn't perhaps the willingness or the keenness of people locally to fill those jobs. And across the UK, there's been already reports that there's a significant reduction in the number of people from other U European Union countries coming in, and also an increase in the number of people from Poland and other EU countries leaving the UK to go back home. Are you seeing that impact already in Derry? Yeah, we already have that. We have brilliant people from Poland, ultimately, who are in housekeeping. And they are you know, very unsettled by the position that they find themselves in. They don't know what's going Well, they didn't know what was going to happen. Certainly the ones that are, might come here, whether it be family members or associates, are just not coming. And the lower skill end, you know, kitchen porters, you know, someone has to wash your dishes after you've had your dinner. And you know, someone has to clean your bedroom if you're in a hotel. And these are, these are problems which are going to get worse, and they, they could be a, a substantial impact. There are private companies who take on the, well, the housekeeping business, 
but those companies are saying no I won't work in this area and this area and this area because we can't get the staff and that that is going to be a big impact as we go forward and I suppose the message here is both to younger adults locally and also to the skills training providers that actually we need a shift in approach in terms of skills provision and willingness to take on certain jobs because there will be jobs available but we need people with the right skills who are willing to take those jobs. There seems to be a complete disconnect between what we require in industry, this industry, and the skills of people coming out um, fully across the board in every element uh, and, and, and the ones we've already discussed. So I do think that there needs to be massive attention given at a local, national, Northern Ireland sense, all Ireland sense, and in the UK and Ireland sense, I've got serious trouble. Okay, thank you to Brenton. And recently, as you will have heard in our last episode as well, we were at a conference held by our funders, the Community Foundation for Northern Ireland. And we met with several of our uh, colleagues who are funded through the same fund as ourselves. And one of them was David McMullen uh, from County Armagh Community Development Group. Yes, it's very important for us to understand that sitting here in Derry, we have a different perspective to many other people across other parts of Northern Ireland for whom the difficulties may be less or more severe. And also that, you know, we we have essentially two communities within Northern Ireland and there is a different perspective on Brexit uh, from the mainstream of nationalist and Republican uh, community uh, compared with the mainstream of the Unionist uh, Protestant Loyalist community. Mm. And David explains a bit more about how in particular the farming communities within unionism are dealing with the, the issues around Brexit. The PUL community was very split on Brexit and still is. The closer to, you are to the border, there's a different opinion. And then as you go next to Ballon, next border down, there's a different opinion again because they see it not border, not to us. Couldn't care less. Yeah, a very big range of different opinions. So basically people closer to the border are more against Brexit and those further away are less concerned? Uh, I wouldn't say they're more against it. They want to know what's happening. More clear. Yes, yeah, yeah. We want to know what's happening so that we can and, prepare and for that. And has that changed since the vote? I mean, has, have views changed or are they just solidified? Uh, well, well, I think most people now have accepted since we started the consultations that it's happening. Initially, you had to tell people, you know, this isn't a re-vote of the referendum here. Mm. It, it, that has happened. Yeah. It's now taking place. What's the way forward? What is your Brexit project, if you like, that's funded through CFNA? A series of roundtable discussions, I think there was about 13 in total, right. which was covering uh, farm families, older people, young people. So we had, we had a thematic group for each of those, right. and a number of discussions took place. And then we finished it last week with a conference where we brought all those groups together, presented our findings to them, and asked for any feedback. There was concern about the lack of where we are, one year on and we're still not a lot the wiser what's actually happening, particularly from the business community. They, um, they're not concerned about Brexit per se because their view is if you have, have a good product at a, at a good price, you'll be able to sell it. But let us know what's happening, what the, what the ground rules are so we can prepare. Don't leave it to the 11th hour that you know, tomorrow we don't know what's happening. Farmers had mixed views regarding Brexit. Obviously, they, they're concerned about the, the lack of support that may, there may be from the UK government going forward regarding subsidies. Uh, there's a real concern that if subsidies are cut completely, farm just isn't, it doesn't stack up because farmers are so reliant on subsidies. 
there's also the concern around the movement of livestock over the border because that, that would happen and particularly as you get closer to the border because a lot of farms straddle the border you would have farmers who would have land on both sides of the border mm. and are trying to walk in two different jurisdictions with two different sets of rules that's another concern as well is the amount of bureaucracy that there is regarding farming and is that in, going to increase or the um, what, what's going to happen around standards our standards here are, are about the highest in the world, but there's a real danger that come back that there'll be inferior food so coming in. From Argentina yeah, coming in from wherever. Yeah. Lord knows what's in that. Could be full of antibiotics or, or whatever. Mm. So there's real concern around that. Also, a number of farmers would be supplying milk to the south of Ireland. As you may be aware, there's a number of milk purchasers and a number of those across border. So what's what's going to happen regarding the like of that? Are any farmers taking anticipatory action as a result of this? I mean, for example, decided to, to sell up because they expect to lose subsidies? Uh, no, I don't think it would have got to that stage. No, no. Uh, a lot of them, it's, it's wait and see. Because what can you do to you know what's actually happening? I suppose you could say, well, it's likely going to lose subsidies, therefore land is likely to lose value, so it's better off to sell now before land does value. Uh, in County Armagh, particularly in the area I'm from, which is Market Hill, Land is the dearest in Europe, uh, and one of the reasons is that is that is the most densely populated area of Europe for dairy cows. But you could take the view, well, you know, sell when the market's high. Farmers don't do that. Most farmers are in it for the long haul. It's a, it's a family, family business, yes. The Highwell Trust podcast presents Brexit Focus. As we draw near to the UK's exit from the European Union, Paul Goslin brings monthly updates on the negotiating processes, how Brexit is affecting us in the North West, whilst attempting to take away some of the fear and uncertainty from the issue on the local community. Hollywell Trust Brexit Focus Podcast, released on the 25th of every month. Catch up on past episodes for free on our SoundCloud page, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher.com. Search Hollywell Podcast. That was an interesting insight there from David. You also talked recently to Dara MacDonald, who's written a book, Hard Border, Walking Through a Century of Partition. And again, it's like we heard from David about living along the border. Uh, Dara very much talks about the impact of the border and the trauma of partition as well. Yeah, Dara is a well-known, experienced journalist who's based in Derry and has lived most of his life around the border, actually, and he launched his book, Hard Border, in the Hollywell Trust building. And Dara was able to explain a bit about how this impacts on communities, and this is something that we picked up in the last podcast as well, where community divisions have been accentuated by Brexit and by the threat it poses. Mm. And the border has, for many generations, been a real challenge for families living along the border. Partition is still felt as an issue. It's a, a, a wound within many families. Mm. And Dara talks a bit about that, both in the interview and also in his book. For people who have lived on the border, on either side of the, of the border, as it currently exists, or as, as it has existed for the past uh, 100 years, the border includes on their daily life. 
it determines where very often where they shop, where they go to work, where they go to school, where they avail of health services, where they, um, you know, kind of socialise. Uh, the border is not has manifested in so many different ways down the down the decades since it was first conceived. And for long periods, uh, roads have been closed, so people's social life has been disrupted. Uh, but even at its most benign, it's still there. It's still determined. And, and as I suppose one of the one of the, the joys of the past five to ten years has been that we have had infrastructural sort of uh, thinking that spans the border with uh, Alton Galvin hospitals, services for Donegal, uh, roads, stuff like that there, you know, kind of uh, promotions generally. Uh, you, you're saying that there's not been the investment by governments nearer the, the border as elsewhere and that's had an economic impact for people in their day-to-day lives. Of course, that, that, that's true because... You know, kind of uh, economic investments are determined by political decisions. Uh, so you invest invest in areas where you're going to get the greatest political payback. If you invest in border areas, then half the people that are going to benefit, if that is the case, if the border is open enough for people to, to benefit, uh, that you're only getting half the electoral sort of advantage from that. So so the investment tends not to uh, not to be as high in border areas. That's part of the peripherality of, of border areas, and that has a has an economic consequence in terms of you know pay, paychecks and disposable income. Yeah. And one of your neat phrases in the conversation today was, "We now have the best border we've ever had." Do you want to explain yes. that? Uh, yes, because if you're going to have a border uh, than the most benign border, the most unobtrusive border, uh, the most invisible border. That's that's the optimum uh, that you can wish for. And what we've had in the past five to ten years has been a border that has been uh, virtually invisible. It's it's a crease in the road, in the road surface. It's a it's a, a glimpse of a, a, a speed warning sign uh, about kilometres or miles, depending on the direction of travel. That's about as much as you can expect. It's also been a benign in the sense that it has focused attention for the first time on cross-border cooperation. That wasn't possible in the past because what you had were two administrations in Ireland that virtually ignored each other's existence. So, so the border is as good now as it can possibly be and any formalisation of that border, anything that will mean the institution of, of restrictions of movement of good services for people is going to be seen as a huge regression and it's going to be bitterly and I would think physically opposed by people and I'm not talking about paramilitaries but about um, uh, ordinary people. And by comparison, you made the point that in the past there's been very many different manifestations of that yes. border. Do you want to give some examples of how different it has been in parts of the past? Okay, well, in, initially the border was uh, a, a sort of a line that nobody knew exactly where it existed because, and that was only for a year or two, but the, the Free State Government introduced a, a customs frontier uh, in 1923, in April Fool's Day uh, 1923. And that was before the border had finally been determined. It's the only instance I'm aware of in the world where customs duties preceded the, uh, the, 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 the determination of the boundary. <laughs> but that, in 1925, but that involved the closure of an awful lot of roads. And that was undertaken by the Free State. Um, so they closed roads, uh, bridges, uh, crossing points and whatever, uh, and, and left only 17. It's now been determined that there's 208 
border crossings. Uh, I would think there are more than that, but uh, anyway, that's the agreed. But to reduce that to 17, that's what they did back then. So you've had that, but you've had always the, the customs frontier during the economic war of the 1930s between the Free State and Britain. Uh, the border became the, the, the front line. Uh, like cattle were slaughtered along the border because uh, there was no market for it. Uh, uh, you know, the border was a, a smuggling border. It was during the Second World War. It was the difference between the, the, the Allies and fighting the Second World War and people in the Free State having an emergency. You know, it, it's, it's uh, during the 1950s, it was the border campaign that determined everything. So spikes, uh, B special patrols, that you know, kind of that persisted right through the 1960s. Uh, the B-specials were on the border, and then you had the conflict. You had the, the modern conflict. So you've had all of these down the decades. Uh, there hasn't been just one other border than the one we have now. There have been so many that it's... Uh, and it determined where people went. You know, kind of... Uh, like, you know, I know people who were younger than me who grew up in the town that I grew up in who didn't know what lay beyond the uh, the craters on the road, the, the, the huge concrete barricades they didn't know that their own families uh, extended over there you know that, that's a very good point I mean what do you think the partition and the border has done to the psychology of people living along the border I, I, I think that uh, border and partition was traumatic it was traumatic for everybody in Ireland because it changed the way that we perceived who we were as, as a people on either side how we determined our identity and once you interfere with a dent, you're into sort of the, the level of trauma. That was most uh, obvious in people who lived close to the border, it, uh, because it not only it not only traumatised them, it discriminated in so many different ways against their chance to thrive and have a, a livelihood and whatever. So, all of these things. And what are your fears for the border for the future? I, I am very fearful uh, that if Brexit happens uh, to plan. Uh, that there will be a re-escalation of border controls and, 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 and that that in itself will be a catalyst for conflict. It will also be a huge regression of where we have come to in terms of breaking down barriers. Uh, and, and, and barriers of the past are certainly not anything to be looking at uh, in terms of... Because, because it will. It's traumatic and it will lead to violence and confrontation. Do you have a burning question or query regarding Brexit? Then contact us via email at brexit at hollywelltrust.com or tweet us at hollywellt or leave us a message on our Facebook page and Paul will try and address that issue in a future episode. Paul, time for our Brexit questions. This week you met up again with representatives from Derry Wellwoman. What were the burning issues? Broadly, the same issues as the last time I spoke to Dairy Well Women. Mm. Uh, there are particular concerns uh, regarding the future of the European Health Insurance Card, which called, used to be called the E111. Okay, my name is Pauline, and I would like to ask a question about the E111. Will we still be able to use it if we go to Europe once we come out of Europe? Uh, that was a very interesting question, and we know also from... Um, an opinion poll conducted by a travel insurer that uh, the future of the European health insurance cards is one of the main issues that's worrying people across the whole of the United Kingdom. This isn't just an issue for people in Derry. Mm. And we heard in the last podcast that there was a sense of optimism that assuming we have a negotiated settlement, 
where we leave the European Union. The hope of the UK government, and probably the hope of a number of European Union member states, is that there will be a continuation of the European Health Insurance Card. But we don't know. And we don't know whether it will apply to all people who want to use it. So, for example, the uh, travel insurance company that conducted its survey uh, thinks that it's quite likely that while the EHIC will be still available to people to be used, those people who've resettled to other countries may not be able to continue to use the facilities of their their local health service. So, for example, people from Derry who might have retired to Spain, Mm. they might not be able to use it. So if you visit, you might still be able to, hopefully. But if you retire there, there is a particular issue for people with pre-existing medical conditions. And if the European Health Insurance Card is not renegotiated for the UK citizens to use, then there is a very real danger that people who have got pre-existing medical conditions, for example, those people who need to use kidney dialysis machines, Mm. will effectively be unable to travel abroad. Because uh, not only would they not be covered by EHICS, but also the travel insurers are warning that basically pre-existing medical conditions will not be covered with travel insurance cards. So this will be potentially a serious limitation on people in declining poor health having holidays elsewhere within the European Union after we leave Brexit. But like lots of these other things, we have to wait and see to find out exactly what happens in terms of the negotiated outcome, assuming there is a negotiated outcome, when we leave the European Union. The other thing which was also raised by the Dairy Health Wealth Women Group was the issue that this is applied to people within dairy, where the waiting lists are very long for treatment, for example, hip replacement, that people have gone to other countries. There was one woman who's a member of the Dairy Well Women who I went, I think, to to Latvia to have her, her hip replaced because under the single market rules, if you've got a failure within your own system, you mm. can avail of another country's system within the European Union. That almost certainly, that will cease to be in place once we've left the European Union. So there will be a material change. And of course, the other thing which has to be stressed is that the NHS is now suffering real difficulties in terms of recruiting staff. And that is a factor that's increasing the waiting list here. Okay. Well, thank you for that, Paul. Um, As always, if anybody has any questions concerning Brexit that you'd like Paul to look under, just drop us a line to brexit at hollywelltrust.com. Okay, so thank you everyone for listening. Thank you to everyone who took part in the podcast and, as always, to Paul for his insights and experience and to D. Kern for production support. Remember to get in touch with us if you have any questions. Thanks again to our funders, the Community Foundation for Northern Ireland. Keep an eye out on the Friday the 25th of May for Paul's Brexit blog that will appear in the Derry Journal and the paper and on the website. And remember to like, subscribe, share. The more people know about this, the more impact that's going to have. All right, talk to you soon. You can stay up to date with us on our social media pages. On Facebook, look for the Hollywell Trust. And on Twitter, it's at Hollywell Team.